Bible today, and I want you to run on over to the book of Luke. Turn over to Luke chapter 19 today. Again, we're in our Never Settle series, and uh, we've been addressing that issue, to never settle. And of course, that's our theme this year, and so we've kind of developed a series all around that theme. We, uh, or should I say, I've been concerned as I've looked around the landscape of Christianity as well as the world itself and recognized and understood that it just seems more and more than not settling has become par for the course. We said that our perfect Savior will only truly be happy with a perfect effort. We can't settle for doing well. we got to simply be happy with doing our best. I mean, that's all we can do. We have to be our best. 
We can't settle for making it. We must only be happy reaching our potential. We can't be content with mediocrity. And we said that we never want to settle professionally. We never want to settle personally. We don't want to settle spiritually. We can never settle. F.B. Meyer once said, let us be inspired with a holy ambition to get all that God is willing to bestow. And so we went on to point out that if we intend to never settle, we pointed out some characteristics and qualities that men and women in the Bible possess that help them to never settle. We said we need a heart for God like Jabez. We need convictions like the three Hebrew children, confidence like David, courage like Joshua, commitment like Nehemiah. We need consistency like Daniel and patience like Joseph. And we ended by saying we need some determination like Caleb. We said that the first and the last one kind of stand above and beyond the others to some degree. That if we were making a sandwich, we would put them as the bread. We need a heart for God like Jabez. And we must be determined like Caleb. In a generation that seems to settle more than, off, more than not, believers can never settle. You call yourself a child of God. You believe yourself to have been born again. Then, my friend, it's imperative and it is important that we never settle. Now, during the course of our study, we started noting a couple of things. First of all, we we had a message and we addressed this issue. Never settle for a good marriage when we can have a great marriage. And then we said, never settle for good kids when you can have godly kids. And today, I want to consider this thought. Never settle for a successful ministry, but strive for a supernatural one. Again, we're settling all too often, even in ministry. Again, our ministry and our service to God on earth plays an extremely crucial and vital role in our future service in eternity. Again, we're over in the book of Luke, chapter 19. Let's begin reading in verse 12. So we kind of kick this message off. Chapter 19, verse 12. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a messenger after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned... Having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. Sounds like our weight. (laughs) Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10, uh, excuse me, the first, yeah, gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, verse 17, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. He said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. 
And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou thy money, my money, unto the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. This does not sound like our culture and our society, does it? <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. They said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be given, shall be taken away from him. Wow. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Wow, that's a lot different than what we're used to today. But what we learn, we learn a valuable lesson in Luke chapter 19, and we see this parable, and of course we know there's these servants and uh, their master has gone away to gather the kingdom and ultimately to come back to it, and all of a sudden he returns and he says, what have you done with what I gave you? I gave you a pound and you a pound and you a pound and you a pound, and he did that for ten of his servants. When he returns, he says, all right, now show me, what have you done with the pounds? And the servant comes and says, well, I'll tell you what, master, I have not only the pound, but it's turned into 10 pounds. And he's like, wow, that's good. Matter of fact, it's so good because you've been faithful and little. I'm going to make you master over 10 cities. You were so faithful, so consistent, so dependable with what I gave you while I was no longer there, even in my absence. I can trust you now with ten cities. The second one comes and says, well, Master, I, I took your pound and now there's five. Oh, wow. Five? That's wonderful. I have been able to trust you, obviously, in little. While I was gone, you were faithful and consistent, and you used exactly every ounce that I gave you, and you now have five, five cities. Five cities. is You'll rule and reign over five cities. The other one comes and says, Well, I, I have your pound. Here it is. I didn't spend it. I didn't waste it. You have my pound. The, very, the pound I gave you when I left? Well, what did you do with it? Well, I wrapped it in a napkin. I kept it real safe. You wrapped it up. Why didn't you use what I gave you? You could have at least taken it to the bank and I could have at least got my interest on it. Not only... Am I not happy with what you didn't do? But I'm going to take what you have and give it to the one who has ten. You say, what, what, what are you getting at? 
Can I tell you that what you do in this life today with what God has entrusted into your care, your health, your ability, your insight, your understanding, your intellect, the gifts that God gives you, the spiritual gifts that he provides you with, can I tell you they set the stage? What you do with them today determines how many cities you will rule in the millennium. How much authority God will entrust to you in that day. Do you realize that what you do today in ministry will ultimately affect what God permits you to do in eternity? I don't believe that. Okay, don't believe it. Do nothing for God. See how it turns out for you. I think there's going to be a lot of people one day get at the judgment seat of Christ and realize they wasted their days. And I do believe that when the millennial reign takes place and we return with him in chapter 19, that we're going to find that he's going to go, okay, you're in charge of this and you're in charge of that. I could trust you in, in the life that you live. And then what I gave you when I went to go call out my kingdom and I came back, it was really good to go. If that investment had produced a major return, I'm going to put you in charge now of even more than ever. And there'll be others that, well, couldn't trust you then. I can't trust you now. Listen, if you and I are determined to reach our full potential in ministry and never settle, I believe we're going to need some essentials. So what do you mean? I've got four things I want to share with you that I believe are absolutely necessary if we're going to not settle for simply a successful ministry, but a supernatural ministry. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We need you today. May you just encourage us in your word and may you just speak to our hearts. Lord, we'll thank you. We'll praise you for what you're going to accomplish in our lives, even this day and ultimately into eternity. Be glorified now. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I am saddened today as I watch the landscape of Christianity function and operate in a passionless manner. It's unbelievable today. I struggle with it. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. 23, verse 37. Chapter 23, verse 37. Notice who's speaking. The Lord Jesus Christ is. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered their chickens under her wings, and he would not. Man, there is no one in the word of God that is a better example of a passionate person than Jesus Christ. I believe when we start thinking about passion, however, I think it's important not to simply define the word passion because we could all go to a dictionary. We could all look up what it means to be passionate. I believe that it would do us well instead of trying to define passion. Instead, ask this question. What does passion look like in a life? Every last one of us in this room have seen someone in this life, whether it be in the workplace or possibly in dealing with family or a hobby or God or life that had passion in that area. And we could say, man, I know what passion looks like. I may not be able to define what passion is, but I'll tell you what it looks like. It was excitement. It was involvement. It was sacrifice. It was saying, I'm not going to let anyone or anything come between me and that which I am passionate about. 
We see passion. We can describe passion, but sometimes defining it's not as easy. Can I tell you, you don't need to define it. You simply need to describe it, and you need to become it. Because we need passion. If indeed we are not going to settle for simply the world's idea of what success is in ministry, if indeed we only settle for what God calls supernatural and what the world has to call supernatural, we're going to need some passion. No one ever questioned, could question Jesus' passion. I mean, he was so passionate that literally he laid down his life for what he believed and who he believed in, and that was us. His life and ministry provide literally a textbook definition of passion. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Ministry. We're talking about not settling in ministry. And every last one of us is going to find that we have a ministry of sorts. We all do. The question is, will we settle? Well, there's, again, as we mentioned here already, there's some essentials. And number one is passion. Are you passionate about your ministry? Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the disciples whom he had chosen, to whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Notice to whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs. When Jesus Christ went to Calvary and he died, he was buried and rose again. Can I tell you, he began to show some infallible proofs of his existence, his reality. Can I tell you that the crucifixion and what transpired and took place on Calvary was literally called and referred to as his passion. Can I tell you, when a man or a woman is willing to sacrifice their life and limb, it is nothing less than passion. And I'm going to tell you, ministry today is dying on the vine, whether it be in the pulpit or in the pews, for a lack of passion. I wonder, are you a passionate person? You know, do you possess an enthusiastic personality? You say, well, you don't have to be enthusiastic to be passionate. I'll tell you what, it don't hurt. When I walked up here just a little bit ago and I was all like this, that ain't a very exciting time. That's not going to motivate anybody to get fired up. That's certainly not going to express passion, is it? And this idea, well, I'm just not like that. Well, you better die to self and crucify the flesh, my friend, and you better get passionate because if you're not passionate about the things of God, my friend, you're going to miss out in eternity. You're going to lose out on all the rewards and you're going to end up sitting on the sideline watching some others that did Spend what God gave them properly. You're going to wish to God you did something with what he gave you too. So we need to be passionate for Christ. That's the first thing. You talk about passion, we need a passion for Christ. We're talking about ministry, but too many times we miss the real foundational element of ministry, and it is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. 
The psalmist in Psalm chapter 143, verse 6 says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. I'm so thirsty for you. My mouth is parched like desert. I need to taste you, God. I need you. Passionate about Christ. That's the first thing we need, a passion for Christ. But then we need a passion for our calling. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Here in this particular passage, we often get kind of bogged down with that verse 13, but really, in reality, we're going to see that God intends us to get past that. Watch what he says in chapter, 13, uh, chapter 3 of Philippians, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he makes the statement, he says, Brethren, chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Philippians, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He said, I haven't arrived, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now we get bogged down with that this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Forgetting those things which are behind. Can I tell you, that's not the one thing. That's part of it. That's a piece of getting to the one thing. You can't get to the one thing without forgetting that which is behind, but the one thing is not just forgetting what's behind. Notice he says in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the thing he's doing. The Apostle Paul has already finished, and earlier in the chapter, that is, an impressive list of credentials. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Man, I'll tell you what, if you wanted to look at a Jew, my friend, you look at me, because honestly, I had fulfilled all the law. If I wanted to, I could go back and look at my past, and I could say that, man, if there was anybody that was firmly rooted in Judaism, if there was anybody that could say that he's kept the law and did his very best to fulfill the law, it would be me. But I'm forgetting those things which are behind. I'm not going to place my hope of righteousness in my own personal works and effort. I'm forgetting those things which are behind, and that's what he's talking about. And I'm moving on to grace through faith. I'm trusting Jesus Christ, and I'm moving on to that calling he's given me. I don't have to worry about my salvation now. It's been settled in full, paid in full. But there's a calling that I'm striving for, to fulfill the calling of God, to accomplish what God's given me to do. See, now he's passionate about his calling. And he's passionate about fulfilling it. You can never lead something you don't care passionately about. You can't start a fire in your ministry unless one is burning in your heart first. You can't expect others to get excited about something that you're not. Passion. Oh, I want a ministry that's not just successful in the world's eyes. I want a ministry that's supernatural. You're going to have to have passion then. Number two, you're going to need some planning and preparation. 
planning and preparation. When I think about that, I'm going to break that down into two sides. First of all, spiritually speaking. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. If we're not going to simply settle for so-called successful ministry, and by the way, our standard of success is so minimal and so low today. We had three in class today. Praise God. Really? I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to praising the Lord, but my friend, you had five just two months ago. Why is three good now? What is wrong with us? No passion. And why is it that there's only three? What have you failed to plan and prepare for that now there's only three when there was five? What's going on? Well, I feel like a success. Well, let me ask you a question. Would other people in the world look at your class and go, supernatural, baby, had to be God, all God? Because isn't that really what we want? I mean, we don't want just a successful ministry. Oh, look at this guy. He's full of charisma. Look, he's got intellect. Look, he's got talents and abilities. Look, no wonder he can grow a church. No wonder he can do the work. No wonder he's a good teacher. No wonder he can win souls. No wonder. No, we want a ministry, no matter how successful we've been in the past, no matter how talented we may be, no matter how many abilities God's given us, where the world has to look and go, hey, it has to be, oh God! A ministry that's just successful. I want a supernatural ministry. And that's what every last one of us ought to have and want to have. Because that's the standard God places. We're so quick to settle, though, aren't we? Planning and preparation, spiritual. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth. The same, to, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. You know, if there's an element that we have dismissed in our lives and in our ministries, it is this element of personal sanctification. I mean, if we hope to be prepared for every good work, it's going to take some painstaking dealing with one thing. We're going to have to face one thing. We're going to have to address one thing more than anything else in our life. It's a three-letter word that we despise, that we say we hate, but that we accommodate. S-I-N, sin. You can have a successful ministry and be in sin. Right? You want a supernatural one, you're going to have to be prepared unto every good work, as he says here. That means you're going to have to start addressing. We have to start dealing with the inside, not just the outside. We have to prepare the heart first. We must strive to rid ourselves of evil, becoming a vessel unto honor. See, 
We settle in our ministries, but settling isn't always simply a lack of effort or creativity or focus. That's not necessarily where our lack is. It's a lack often of personal sanctification, purity, holiness. See, God uses holy vessels, and he will find, we will find ourselves settling if we neglect this area of personal sanctification. But there is that element of practical planning and preparation too, though. I'd like to be able to say that, boy, in the church house today across America, it's obvious. People really are fired up about the work of God. They're putting forth all that effort, and they're really investing their time, their energy, their money. It's amazing. They just aren't very spiritual. I wish I could even say that. Not that I really want to say that, but I mean, that would be better than probably where we're at because the truth is, more often than not, we settle in our ministries for literally a lack of effort. It's not that we don't want God to bless and work in our lives and ministries, but we lack the discipline to plan and prepare as necessary. We were talking about it in soul winning the other day, and we made mention of the cla- in the class that we have to prepare for rain. we got to be ready when God sends the rain. Are we ready to lead that person to Christ when he drops them in our lap or when he brings them to us at the gas station or when he presents them at the door? Are we ready to share the gospel? Have we prepared for the rain and the blessings of God? Because if we haven't, then the blessings aren't going to come. We've got to prepare practically as well. It's been said it's not that we plan to fail, it's that we fail to plan. Lazy and apathy are characteristics that are becoming more and more common in lives and ministries. And can I tell you that these elements are deadly to the spirituality and the ministries. They are as deadly as poison is to our bodies. Planning and preparation take a lot of time and energy. Hey, teaching Sunday school, running the bus program, presenting the gospel, training the choir, memorizing music for specials, ordering the service, organizing the nursery, outlining uh, just the classes, scheduling the instrumentals, prioritizing the calendar, positioning the ushers and greeters, promoting the church, and so on and so forth. They demand a tremendous amount of planning and preparation. Listen, I'm telling you that although God is always wanting to work, when they stepped up to that old tomb and their old Lazarus was behind that rock, that he told them, you move that rock before I do the supernatural. You're going to prepare. You're going to ready it. And we're waiting for God to move the stone away and raise Lazarus. Because we're so lazy, so apathetical toward this issue of, of, issue of ministry today. And I'm talking in general. I'm not just talking about our church because I believe we have a lot of people that are fired up about things. But let me tell you, there's always some room for improvement in my life. And i got to believe there's some in your life. And as I look across the landscape of America today and churches across America, there's a lack of passion. There's a lack of planning and preparation. Well, you just can't do it today. It doesn't work like it used to. Nobody wants to hear now. Nobody cares about the truth of the gospel. They hate us. If I recall correctly, I remember Jesus telling the disciples that. Seemed like it worked out all right for them. Well, it depends on what you consider working out all right. It takes a lot of painstaking effort and time to prepare. 
to reach our full potential in ministry. We cannot settle for a half-hearted effort. We need to give our best to procure all that God has for us. In 1946, Ray Charles, he heard that Lucky Millinder Band, the Lucky Millinder Band was coming to town. You say, you're talking about Ray Charles in church? Yeah. It's sad when the world puts more of an effort into their work than we do the ministry. But anyway, listen to what happened. Ray Charles heard in 1946 that Lucky Millinder Band was coming to town. He managed to arrange an audition. I mean, he was super excited about it. He knew if he could get on with, with Millinder, he'd be in the big time. When his opportunity came, that young musician, he played the piano and he, he sang his heart out. Of course, we know that Ray Charles was blind, and so he just he couldn't see Millinder's reaction while, while, while he was actually performing, and so he just simply waited till he was finished to hear what he had to say. Finally, he heard the band leader make this statement. He said, ain't good enough, kid. Ain't good enough. Charles said that he went back to his room and he cried that day. Literally cried. But then he went on to say this. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. After I got over feeling sorry for myself, I went back and started practicing so nobody, nobody would ever say that to me again. And he commented by saying, no one has. And he said this, as the saying goes, you can claim to be surprised once. After that, you're unprepared. You can claim to be surprised once, but after that, you're unprepared. In the world's eyes, he was immensely successful. For a half century, 50 years, he played with some of the most talented musicians in the world. Planning and preparation may not guarantee us a win but it sure puts you in a position for one. Again, isn't it sad that the world would put forth that kind of effort to succeed in this life only when we as believers have the prospect of investing in eternity? At the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, Mary Lou Retton, some of you may remember her way before my time, But in 1984, Mary Lou Retton won a gold medal in the individual all-around competition as well. She won two silvers, and she won two bronze medals also. Her performance made her one of the most popular athletes in the entire United States. I mean, you couldn't say her name. Everybody knew who she was. When asked about her success in gymnastics, she made this statement. She said, here's what it takes to be a complete gymnast. Someone should be able to sneak up and drag you out at midnight, push you out on some strange floor, and you should be able to do your entire routine sound asleep in your pajamas without one mistake. That's the secret. It's got to be a natural reaction, she said. Listen, if we are going to never settle for simply a successful ministry but experience a supernatural one, then we're going to have to plan and prepare both spiritually and physically. Practically. Another essential would be priority or priorities. 
In John chapter 9, verse 4, the Bible says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus Christ is speaking here. I must work the works of him while it is day. For the night cometh when no man can work. We're, I only got so much time, he's saying. We're limited. We're limited in time. We're limited in energy. Therefore, we must be very careful to direct our greatest effort toward eternity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Listen, I'm not promoting neglecting other areas, only a conscious effort to prioritize God and his work in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the apostle Paul does exactly that when he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I think it's important to note in the passage that the believer is part of a much larger family than the one where he or she lays their head at night. Notice what he says. He says, my beloved brethren. He's pointing out the fact that we are all part of the family of God here. That the whole family is to be engaged in reaching the world for Christ and bringing glory to God. We get so short-sighted, we only see ourselves and our own and we fail to remember we're part of a much larger family. Too often our ministries suffer because we fail to prioritize them. That essentially leads to settling. (laughs) We permit just too many things to distract us. In her book, A Practical Guide to Prayer, Dorothy Haskins tells about a noted concert violinist who was asked the secret of her mastery of the instrument. The woman answered the question with two words. She said, quote, Planned neglect. Planned neglect. Then she went on to explain. She said, there were many things that used to demand my time. When I went to my room after breakfast, I made my bed, straightened the room, dusted, and did whatever seemed necessary. When I finished my work, I turned to my violin practice. That system prevented me from accomplishing what I should on the violin. So I reversed things. I deliberately planned to neglect everything else until my practice period was complete. And that program of planned neglect is the secret of my success. Can I tell you too many times, we're putting everybody and everything ahead of the ministry that God's given us. And can I remind you, can I remind you for a moment that we are not living for now, we're living for eternity. And yet we put all the emphasis on today. I don't have time. I don't have time for that, and I'm really tied up with this, and I've got responsibilities, and I've got to take care of this, and I have family and friends all depending on me. What about Jesus, and what about eternity? My friend, I'm going to tell you, I don't know how many cities you'll be in charge of, if you'll be in charge of any, but my friend, what have you done, and what are you doing with the gifts and the abilities that God has given you today, not for yourself, but for him and his kingdom? Finally, prayer. When I say finally, I mean last but not least, by any stretch of the imagination. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, the Bible says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and shew thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. When we fail to pray, we fail to enlist and employ the efforts of God Himself. 
That is textbook settling, don't you think? The only limits to prayer are the promises of God and his ability to fulfill those promises. I want you to think about that for a moment. The only limits to prayer are the promises of God and his ability to fulfill those promises. Doesn't sound like prayer has many limits, does it? In Psalm chapter 81, verse 10, the Bible says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. In Psalm chapter 81, God points out that that he was there for the Jews in their greatest time of need. Here they were bound in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt, and they're crying out to God, Oh God, deliver us! God heard their prayer, and God delivered them. Amidst the impossible odds, he did a supernatural work. But now in chapter 81, he turns to them again, And he invites them to draw on his infinite power each and every day. He's basically saying, I am not just a God who's there for you in your trouble, but a God you turn to for triumph. Open your mouth wide and I'll feel it. Stop worrying about just getting out of a problem. Work on fixing them and doing something miraculous and supernatural with my power. Open your mouth wide. As your God, he says, the sky's the limit. So set your expectations as high as you like and count on as many blessings as you can trust me to provide. So many of our failures are simply prayer failures. You know, we turn to others, we turn to ourselves, we look to the world's wisdom instead of enlisting the exhaustible energy and effort of our faithful Father. We settle. We settle. Mark chapter 11, verse 23 says, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Let me summarize it. Prayer moves mountains. But it also moves men. Hudson Taylor had this amazing goal or motto that he lived by. He would say, to move man through God by prayer alone. Amazing. Think about that for just a moment. I mean, one of the greatest missionaries of all time, he went to China, and tonight we'll talk a little bit more about him as I teach you and talk to you a little bit tonight about how to increase your passion. But here he is, living by a motto, to move man through God by prayer alone. Oh, I know he had to plan and prepare. I know he had to have passion. I realize that he had to put his whole body, soul, and spirit into the work in order to accomplish what he did. But he didn't want just a successful ministry. He wanted a supernatural ministry. And he understood that it wasn't enough simply to get it done. He wanted to do it all in God's power so that the world had to look and say, you know what? That had to be God. That's got to be God. The Chenille Group, it's a group that is 
Well, it's a company founded in Seoul, Korea. They released submarine footage of what, is, what analysts believe could be the shipwreck of a Russian cruiser that vanished 113 years ago during the Russo-Japanese War. Chenille believes that the ship may have carried 200 tons of gold that might be worth $132 billion. The shipwreck, they believe, as they've done the estimates and they've gone down and looked at it, they've measured it to be 1,300 feet below the surface. I wonder what prayers have not been offered that lay buried and waiting to be uncovered for God's glory. I mean, how many needs go unmet? Ministries remain powerless. How many lives undone? Simply because we never uncover the treasures of answered prayer. Oh, we can blame our busy schedules. We can justify our sinful neglect. But all the while, we're just simply settling. Ian Bounds made this statement. He said, prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is almost revealing, that is always revealing some new beauty. If we hope to never settle in our ministries, I mean, if we hope to experience not only a successful ministry from the world's standard or even our own, but a supernatural one, then we must possess a passion. We must plan and prepare. We must prioritize. And we must pray. We go to Luke and in Luke, <clears throat> the image or the picture is that of the Lord leaving. And as he leaves, he entrusts certain things into the hands of his servants. Pounds, he calls them. Money, if you will. When the Lord left, he entrusted into the watch care and stewardship of those that he left behind, money, effort, ability, talents. And he went away, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, what will he find? What will they have done with what he entrusted them with, what he gave them, what he placed them as stewards over? What will he find? We have done. You don't realize that I got an education to get. I've got a job I got to get. I got to do this and I got to do that. I'm asking you. Will he say, guess what? Ten cities. Five cities for you. Give me what I gave you. It obviously was a waste of my time and yours. Let me give it to the one that has ten cities. We're living our lives for tomorrow, not today. The question is, what are you going to do with today about tomorrow? Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts. And again, Lord, we understand that as believers, we're part of a much larger family than just simply the one where we lay our head each night. 
Father, I pray, dear God, you'd help us, Father, to take seriously this responsibility that's ours as the part of the family of God. But Lord, today there may be those that are in our midst that don't even know for sure heaven's their home. They haven't even settled whether or not salvation is theirs. You said that the Lord knoweth them that are his. Maybe they're not even his yet. Oh, they're still under the bondage and enslavement of Satan himself. They're still part of the family of the devil. They haven't even entered into your family by the new birth. I pray, Lord, before they leave, they'll recognize that sin is what separates them from you and that they need to address that sin and that you already did take care of it on Calvary 2,000 years ago. You spent yourself. You sacrificed yourself for them. You took their place so that you could pay for their sin. Even though you were perfect and sinless, you died in their place. Lord, may they trust you now with their life, their eternity. In just a moment when we close in this prayer, may they come forward and let someone take a Bible and show them the precious promises of God, how they can know for sure heaven's their home. And for us as believers, Lord, may we not dismiss the urgency of this moment. Father, bless now in these times. May the soul be saved that's lost and may the soul be reclaimed that's wayward. And Lord, may you help us, Father, to be committed to you and to eternity. We'll thank you in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. Won't you come? Slip out of that seat, just come on down. And, and I'll tell you what, Brother Kavanaugh's right here in the front. You just go to him and he'll have somebody take a Bible and show you. Matter of fact, we can take you off into a corner somewhere where you have a time to look at it and 